kitchen gone and word is to the hall and word is up to madam the queen and that's the worst of all that mary hamilton's born a babe to the highest steward of all arise arise mary hamilton arise and tell to me what thou hast done with thy wee babe i saw and heard weep by thee i put him in a tiny boat and cast him out to sea that he might sink or he might swim but he'd never come back to me arise arise mary hamilton arise and come with me there is a wedding in glasgow town this night we'll go and see she put not on her robes of black she put on her robes of white to ride into glasgow town as she rode into glasgow town the city for to see the bailiff's wife and the provost's wife cried out and alas for thee I oh, need not weep for me she cried you need not weep for me for had i not slain my own wee babe this death i would not Cast off, cast off 
my gown, she cried, but let my petticoat be, and tie a napkin round my face, the gallows I would not see. The king himself looked up with a pitiful eye. Come down, come down, Mary Hamilton. Tonight you dine with me. Oh, hold your tongue, my sovereign liege. And let your folly be For if you'd a mind to save my life You'd never have shamed me Last night there were four Marys Tonight there'll be Mary Beaton and Mary Seaton and Mary Carmichael and me. And that was Joan Baez, Mary Hamilton. That goes back, uh, wow, I guess it's close to 60 years now when that, that album was first recorded. Joan Baez's first full-length album. And uh, she is now, as I'm sure many of our listeners know, retired. Retired from touring, retired from recording, but of course still going strong and uh, still making her voice heard in different ways, still creating art. And there is a wonderful new book that has just been released called Joan Baez, The Last Leaf. It's written by Elizabeth Thompson, and it's just a remarkable book that covers her entire career. And uh, there's also a wonderful discography and uh, bibliography in the book that will fascinate all Joan Baez fans, but also I think will give some insight to... uh, People who may not know a lot about Joan Baez. I certainly learned a lot from it. And I I read Joan's first two books that she wrote. And there's a lot of things in here that uh, I did not know. Well, we're lucky to have Elizabeth Thompson with us uh, from her home uh, in England. Uh, you're, you're near Liverpool, if I'm not mistaken? No, I do have a lot of Liverpool connections, in fact. Um, my mother was from there and I was a student there, but I live in North London. Oh. Um, old London town. Oh, well, I'm so glad you could join us today and uh, to Thank talk you, about Roger. Leon, thank you for inviting me. Um, for our listeners, in addition to writing this book, um, Elizabeth Thompson is also a London-based journalist, and uh, she has written numerous articles to papers and magazines and books over the years. Um, she's lectured at Liverpool University's Institute of Popular Music, uh, as well as Kingston University, University College of London, and uh, she has done a number of other projects that are also involved with folk music, including The Village Trip, which is an annual festival celebrating New York's Greenwich Village that she started in 2018. 
Um, she's also a part of Square Roots Productions, which is a, a, a UK-based charity that celebrates and nurtures uh, folk music heritage between the British Isles and North America. Uh, so it's, it's a real honor to be able to talk to you today. There's so much we could cover, but today we're, we're going to focus a bit on the, on the Joan Baez book. Now, you have, uh, this book is interesting because it, it's, it's more than just a biography. Uh, there's a lot of your, your personal history and your involvement with Joan Baez. I mean, you've interviewed her a number of times over the decades. Yes. And uh, I think you first heard her uh, probably right near the beginning of her career. Well, her career was, uh, you know, if you, take, if you take 1960, Mary Hamilton and her first album as her official starting point in 1960. I first heard her in 1969 and uh, I was uh, 11 years old that summer. It was the summer between what we call primary school and secondary school. I'm not sure what you call it in the States. Um, and I'd been given a beautiful blonde Spanish, a real Spanish guitar sent by my sister's um, boss. She was working in Spain, had been for a few years, and she bought me my first very minute half size guitar. So now I had this, this lovely Spanish guitar and I had to learn how to play it. And I'd been learning piano for a few years and someone showed me kind of, a few, I mean, I knew sort of how music works and someone showed me about half a dozen guitar chords. And then I thought, now what do I do? And um, I found um, in my sister's record collection, she was away in Spain for whatever she did then, about four months a year, I suppose. I found this, this, you know, amongst amongst the Beatles and Stones and things like, you know, Gada Davida, I found <laughs> this solitary record which showed a young woman, black and white cover, young woman, her arms folded, uh, Joan Baez volume two. And on the back, the picture showed her into dappled shade playing a Spanish guitar. So I thought, oh, that's kind of hopeful. And some of the song titles look vaguely familiar. So I put it on your gramophone that I inherited from my parents was allowed to have my bedroom. And the first track was Waggoner's Lad, which is unaccompanied. And I thought, mm, it's not quite what I wanted. And then the second one was The Trees They Grow Up High, which had, which I knew a bit from somewhere, too many bar chords, so I couldn't do that. But then we got into things like Barbara Allen and Banks of the Ohio and Paisley Moore, And also songs that were sort of vaguely familiar from those days in the UK, which you never quite had in the States, I think, where we had um, four BBC radio channels and the odd pirate pop radio um, channel and and uh, three uh, TV channels, which of course seems like ancient history now. <laughs> so, you know, so you kind of listen together as a family. So when I started playing this record, I sort of, in my mind's ear, I thought, yeah, I kind of know some of this stuff. So I was able to learn a couple of songs quite quickly. And then when I went to secondary school in September, I found the school library had the debut we've just spoken about and also Joan Lyons volume five. And that was the album that kind of changed me from just thinking, She's an interesting woman, and this is kind of repertoire I can begin to learn, and I like her voice and so on, to listening to a track on that called Bacchianus Brasilianus, which is a um, uh, Brazilian composer, Villalobos fusion of Sebastian Bach with um, sort of Brazilian folk song. It's an aria of eight cellos and soprano, and I listened to that, and I thought, wow, this woman, whoever she is, I didn't really know yet, can really sing. Uh, so I began began seeking out other stuff. And of course, in, in that analog age of the late 60s and early 70s, which continued quite a bit after that, you know, you had to find books, you had to seek out record stores, you had to find old newspaper clippings. So I began doing all that. Um, and um, one of the first places I was led to was um, Dobell's Folk Record Shop on Charing Cross Road in London. Um, and I used to go up there in school holidays and Saturdays and they'd have all sorts of odd imports from the States, heavy old pressings. And eventually I got things like the Newport Folk Festival recordings of Byers and Dylan together. 
I suppose Joan Baez was a sort of Venn diagram through which I, just, I explored not, not only other music, Judy Collins, obviously Bob Dylan, Woody Guthrie, Pete Seeger, you know, on and on and on, every, every artist leading me into another artist and another sort of music. But also each of those artists, of course, led me into aspects of American history, musical history, uh, and very much in Baez's case, social political history. And I realized she'd been, you know, so she's been at all these places, the March on Washington, what was that? Oh yes, it was Martin Luther King. And of course that was only six years before I'd begun listening to her. King was a year dead by that, that summer of my discovering Joe. And so I, you know, I began to, my obsession with um, American history and culture really began with Joan Baez and it led ultimately to the festival that you just mentioned, the village trip, um, which I was able to tell about. <laughs> Hmm. And I guess that's a fairly extreme um, response to a record. And more so, in fact, because my classmates at that time or just after, you know, in the early 70s were screaming for David Cassidy and Donny Osmond <laughs> and all those uh, people. I was going home listening to Bias and Dylan and Leonard Cohen and Janice Evans and, so and whoever else I was discovering. So I guess I was quite a freaky kid, but I didn't really care. <laughs> well, we're we're about the same. I uh, about the same age, and I, I kind of it was the same way in high school when everything was good, <laughs> turning uh, to, like you said. I was listening to Bob Dylan and Joan Baez and Simon and Garfunkel and all those so yeah. old, older songs, although they were only a few years old at that time. But yeah. there's something about it that really captured it. Now, you're obviously a fan of Joan Baez. Uh, <laughs> And a lot of times when people are fans, when they write books, they become kind of gushing uh, uh, fan letters. But yours is absolutely not like that. I mean, you are coming at it as a journalist, uh, which you obviously are. And, uh, you know, you, you uncover a lot of uh, details about Joan. You give impressions of uh, your, your meetings and your interviews with her. And obviously she is someone who's been very open and honest about herself throughout the years. I remember when I first read her autobiography that came out in the late eighties, I was kind of surprised at the, some of the things that she was, was talking about and uh, you know, so sharing. Uh, but for you as, 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 uh, as a fan and as a journalist, were there a lot of things that you uncovered in the process of writing this book? And obviously this book took decades since you first started interviewing her. Well, yes, because it was it was written. I mean, I, when I first, you know, when I first became a journalist and wanted to write about it, was no one, you know, people would say, Joan, who cares? You know, you know, so it was very hard to write. So I got the commission to write this. I think I'd suggest it for a 75th birthday and not interested. And then suddenly I was commissioned by a pub I work with, do you want to do this? Um, when, she, when she, I think she just about announced her, her final album. So because I did want to, so I, I wrote it in a kind of quite short, intense period in, 2019, but of course it had been brewing and marinating, I suppose, in my head for, as you say, 50 years, really. I mean, I'd met her a lot down the years. I'd seen her a lot in concert. Um, I was very privileged to be sent to New York to, to um, report on the, on the sessions at the bottom line for Ring Them Bells in 1995. Um, and I, you know, I had been really, really, really immersed in it. And I also, my obsession had led me to meeting Robert Shelton, the New York Times journalist who chronicled the New York Folk Revival, who lived in London since 1969. I met him 10 years later. So, so the book had been marinating. And I, you know, I had been, uh, you know, I have been, and I am, I am a fan. I, that's always a kind of slightly laugh term, I suppose. Um, I'm, a great, I'm a great admirer, and I've always right. been a great respecter of her as a musician, pure and simple, 
um, and as someone who I think has great moral courage. She's always done what she believed in rather than what's popular. So I, so I knew, you know, I knew a huge amount about um, her life and career. Um, there, were, there were periods of the 80s when she was very below the radar and out of the news. Um, when I discovered during research things that I hadn't much known about, I hadn't known that she'd spent time in, in West Bank and in Israel, and I was kind of wondered about that. I know she preferred to go into Israel. So I, I put flesh on the bones of all sorts of things, and of course the internet does allow you now to, um, you know, to follow all sorts of, of trails. So I found stuff on the congressional record, for example, about her, her trips to um, Cambodia and Thai, you know, Thailand for the boat people and so on. Uh, so, I, so I did discover, but I tried to make it, you know, it's not a... It's absolutely not a kiss and tell. Right. Um, it's not what I wanted to write. I mean, she's, as you just said, in, in um, A Voice to Sing With from the late 80s, she did tell us a lot about her private life. And I remember she told me that some interviewers were very sort of shocked that she said so much. And she's like, she said to me, well, I thought the idea of an autobiography is that basically you're honest in it. <laughs> you know, yeah. Which I suppose is, is an unusual thought these days. Um, so that wasn't what I was, was seeking to do, obviously, where, you know, people like Dylan clearly and Obviously, her husband is very much part of her, her life and, and her political consciousness clearly feature in it. But what I've tried to do is, is to put her properly in her musical and social political context and show how important she was as a musician, uh, huge influence, particularly, I suppose, to, to women, um, singer-songwriters and uh, guitarists. I mean, anyone who picked up a guitar was obviously influenced by buyers in the 60s on. Um, and to show how she matters and why she matters um, and where she fits in. And also to, to show um, all those Dylan fans, some of whom still are very reluctant to admit um, that she was actually very important to his getting a start. This is not to say, and she would never say that, that he wouldn't have made it without her, but she sure gave him a jet propelled start. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, her bringing Dylan to Newport, was yep. a major turning point for Dylan's career. And I, I kind of liken it to 1959 when Bob Gibson brought her mm. on stage at Newport. Um, I, you know, Gibson would later say, well, it's kind of like the Grand Canyon. Sooner or later, somebody was going to discover it. <laughs> so he didn't want to take credit for it. But yes. but it's true. She, she's had a, a whole career of, of bringing to the forefront artists like Dylan. And obviously, Dylan is a big part of, uh, of her story. Um, you know, yeah. We, without getting into all the salacious details that others have, have covered yeah. you. I, I think you really um, did a wonderful job of uh, showing that influence and showing what I think they did for each other. Yes, and you know, you can, people have said it was a matter of convenience for them both. I mean, it seems to me from what she said, from watching her uh, on film and what she said down the years that she was very hurt by the experience and, and perhaps hoped for more from it, I mean, they were both incredibly young, which we forget now, mm -hmm. of course, you know, in the very early twenties in the kind of goldfish bowl of, of public attention, but whatever, they were very important to each other. And they, of course, in recent years, they've each acknowledged that they mattered to each other personally and professionally. But she has been very generous in, in bringing um, people to other writers to public attention. And she's continued to do that you know, throughout her career, uh, whether it was actually bringing people on stage as she did with Dylan and as she did um, in later years, um, with um, oh, you know, so. Stumber, of course, it was the last person to, to tour with her. People like Dar Williams, for example, Richard Schindel. There were all sorts of people. The, um, the Indigo Girls 
uh, Mary Chapin Carpet do. But she did bring a lot of people out. She did give a lot of people um, exposure. Like David Massingill, whose song Fairfax County, yes. for example. Um, and, you know, people like that who I've done, Janice Ian, of course, who had a um, who had her own stellar career, but who also knew buyers very early on. I mean, remembered how gracious she was at Newport and said, you know, said to me for the book that, you know, buyers was always her go-to person for a song she'd written. So, you know, she is, she is, was, um, since the records are in the past, a great interpreter of songs with an ear for a good song. Um, and, uh, you know, there were, Dylan in particular was in her repertoire. I mean, those last, um, concerts in that long farewell tour, um, which I'm sure you saw in several places, Dylan featured incredibly prominently. I'm going to sing a, a BD song for you now, it's a Bobby Dylan song. The only thing he's protesting in this is probably a love affair that lasted too long. Pressure. 
And that, of course, the voice of Joan Baez. Uh, and today we're talking with Elizabeth Thompson, who is the author of a brand new book, Joan Baez, The Last Leaf. And uh, we're talking with Joan. Uh, we're talking with Elizabeth from her home in, uh, in London. Um, you know, one of the things that I learned, I, I mean, I knew a bit about her parents and her grandparents, but you really gave some details there that... Uh, kind of explain to me why Joan Baez was the social activist that she was. Yeah, that was very interesting because I knew the sort of basic bits. You know, I knew, I mean, not least because she sings in Gulf Winds, you know, my, my grandfathers were ministers and it came on down the line. Um, so, you know, I knew that she was descended from ministers on both sides of the family. Um, and I knew her father, who was um, a much more distinguished scientist than anyone realizes, I think, and that, and that she kind of, ever let on for a long time um you know I, I knew I knew basically what they'd done so what I what I didn't realize um the the mother's side I was her mother was born in Scotland was in Edinburgh so I was able to to trace the family back here and find out where her grandfather William who was an Episcopalian minister had come from they married in London and Joan Senior was born in Edinburgh and then they kind of set sail for um Halifax originally uh, and there was quite a peripatetic life, and um, you know that was interesting. He had a, he had quite a rackety life, I think, that involved several marriages. Uh, Joan Senior's mother died young, and then he had a couple more marriages, which I think made life difficult for Joan Senior. But on her father's side, um, you know, uh, Albert Alberto came to um, the states as a toddler from Puebla in Mexico. Uh, um, they were in Texas for a while, and then the family settled in Brooklyn. Um, and, you know, I hadn't particularly found that tra trail, and just as I was beginning to write the book, I was in New York having breakfast, and uh, something popped into my feed indicating that um, Byers had thrown her weight behind uh, a Brooklyn campaign to save um, a particularly ornate building in President Street, Brooklyn, um, which had, in fact, decades before, been the place where her grandfather had started his first English-speaking um, first Spanish-speaking um, Methodist Episcopalian church. So um, it gave, you know, it said where it was, and the building was eventually saved in Italianate style. So that was that was part of it. So she spoke about its importance to the Hispanic community and the general culture of Brooklyn. So you know, I then started looking, and I got in touch with the, with the New York Council of Churches, and I found where it was, and I found that there had been bits and pieces written about. Um, Father B and Mother B, as her paternal grandparents were known, he was a convert from Catholicism to Methodism, of course. Uh, and essentially, they, he'd been a minister in Brooklyn for decades and had been very uh, central to the Hispanic community there. Um, the couple had set up a, um, a summer camp for Hispanic kids up in the Walker Valley. Um, and I think raised money to send those who, who I guess a lot of them who couldn't afford to go otherwise to go on holiday. So um, I went to visit the church uh, last year and, and went to a service. Uh, it's, it's kind of moved to a different different place in Brooklyn, not too far away. But I stayed for the service and I met a, a woman, Regalada, who remembered both parents and who'd been to the summer camp as a camper and as a counsellor uh, and drew a brief but visit, um, vivid uh, portrait of, of um, Bias's paternal grandparents, 
Um, and then I went upstairs and I photographed the two bronze plaques to both of them. And the New York Council of Churches were thrilled that someone at last was telling this story, which they regarded as very significant in kind of church history and in the Hispanic community. So that was a kind of nice story to, to be able to tell and, and to get, but it is, and it does explain a lot because, you know, you can say for sure that she didn't, she didn't fall far from the tree. And of course, you know, her father had a, a crisis of conscience when mm. um, there was an attempt to use his, his science for offensive, defensive purposes. And of course the family became Quakers, started going to Quaker meetings at Joan Senior's uh, suggestion. So um, Joni, as the family called her, grew up a Quaker, and I don't know that she would call herself a Quaker now necessarily, but I think that, you know, it was very important. The, the Quaker faith or the Quaker, the Quaker style of belief and social action was very, very important in, in shaping her. And it was at a, at, a, at a youth kind of Quaker camp on the California, Monterey coast when she was um, 17 that she first met the young preacher named Martin Luther King. And uh, mm. when she talks about that event, she still, tears come to her eyes about what it was like to hear this young preacher, you know, talking about the Montgomery bus boy, boycott and so on, uh, and giving voice to all these um, things that she had inside of it, couldn't express. So you can, you know, I imagine the conversation around the Byers family dinner table, you know, with Albert and Joan Senior and the three girls, um, Mimi Farina, of course, known to your listeners, um, I imagine it was pretty interesting conversation. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, you know, speaking of interesting conversations, you've interviewed her uh, a number of times over the years, uh, <laughs> over the over four decades of interviews. Yeah. And, uh, you know, one thing that I've always seen from as someone viewing her on the outside is that she seems genuine in her convictions uh you know she may reflect on some things like her visits to vietnam uh but yet she remains true uh to herself i mean i i often felt that you know if she wasn't so much of a social activist she would have been a bigger entertainer but that's not what she's about um but have you noticed anything over the years as you've interviewed her have you seen any changes in in her yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I was always, you know, it's always, I mean, I've done hundreds and hundreds of interviews down the years because I spent life writing about the book trade. So, you know, I've interviewed all kinds of people, including President Carter and um, Bill Clinton briefly, um, and lots of people that I admire and respect. But it's always hard, and I'm sure you feel this too, it's always, always hard interviewing someone who's really been a sort of, someone you've really loved and admired and respected, and who's in some way been a, a shaping force in your life. They're the hardest interviews to do. So I was always kind of quite nervous. Um, uh, meeting her and interviewing her, you know, even though we've met a few times, I think she, you know, she, she's known who I am for some time, I think. Um, but I have noticed, so that, so that kind of nervousness obviously kind of sometimes can cause a, a you know, difficulties between subjects and in, interviewer. Um, but I think she has over the years become much more relaxed. I think the, the second half of her career, you know, there was a pivotal interview that I did um, in um, 1990. Um, which I talk about in the book, where she was incredibly relaxed and we spoke for quite a long time over tea in London. I felt, I think it was, it was I who eventually said, okay, it's been nice seeing you, I need to go kind of thing. We talked for quite a long time. And she, she'd reached the point where she realised you know, the wall had come down and so on and she'd had a very active kind of 89 and so on. As she always did, I guess, she was always busy. Um, and she realised she wanted to have a, uh, you know, she wanted to have a musical career and she wanted to crucially she wanted to bow out at a moment of her choosing and she said to me in 1990 which I reminded her of she said um 
you know, maybe I've got 10 more years of this voice, you know, maybe I've got 10 more years. So at that point, she began to sort of separate the strands of her life. I mean, I remember hearing, hearing her live in the 70s and even 80s where, you know, actually I really enjoyed it, but a kind of a great chunk of the concert would be her talking about politics, whether it's Vietnam or prison reform or whatever, you know. Um, and then so after that point, I mean, having said she was going to concentrate on music fairly quickly, she went to Sarajevo and besieged, of course. But it was the case that for the, the second half of her career, the second 30 years, the 10 years that extended to 30, as I pointed out to her, in fact, that most political comments in her concerts were made in the forms of song. So in the last tour, for example, Deportees, I think, featured in every concert I saw. I saw about seven, I think, on three countries. Um, and she talked about, you know, we shouldn't be building more, we should be clothing the naked and feeding the hungry. And then she sang Deportees. So she became much more succinct in her music. Yeah. You know, I remember in, on stage and how she talked about politics. But I think you can't separate the music from the politics. Absolutely no. not. I think it's indivisible. Absolutely. You know, I, I remember reading an interview with her once. Maybe you wrote it. I don't know. <laughs> but she uh, she was talking about some of the old folk songs she sang at the beginning of her career. And she said, well, these these aren't museum pieces. And, and at first, it's, I was wondering what she was talking about. Then, then I finally got it. I mean, she was you know, singing, like you said, deportees all these years because it's still relevant. And I think that's what she's always chosen in, in her in her music. Um, and what she chose in some of her later years, uh, I think, were, was just some incredible songs, um, songs of Steve Earle. And on her last album, uh, a beautiful song by Zoe Mulford, a powerful song by Zoe Mulford. Oh, boy, that's such a good song. And actually, I was, inc I was incredibly struck. I think I heard her do it in two concerts, I think Madrid and in, in New York City, I think, not Portchester. Not she kind of she did uh, Birmingham Sunday and uh, um, President sang Amazing Grace. Now Birmingham Sunday, of course, is the Richard Freeney song, her brother-in-law's song about the, the 1963 Birmingham church bombing in which four little Sunday school children died. Um, and you know, I guess we thought, you know, 30 years ago, that the worst of those battles um, in the civil rights, the bloodiest years, were over. And of course, it's become very clear over the certainly over the last four years that. Um, that's sadly not the case. Uh, so to kind of bookend those two songs was um, horrifying, chilling, intensely moving. Um, and of course, she went back to the South. I mean, I saw her, I had a long chat with her in Bristol when she was beginning the first of her UK farewells. She came back um, and she said, you know, it sold out very quickly, but I, and I have to go to the South. I have to go back to the places where, you know, she'd sung on her first tour to integrate an audience. I think her manager had been not so keen because it wasn't a profitable venture. We said, I need to go back there. I have to see those people. And she did go back to some of those way stations, you know, the civil rights movement. Um, and of course, you know, those battles turned, not, turned out, you know, advances have been made, I'm sure, but the battles certainly weren't won. So, you know, I'm sure that's very disappointing to her. She, I mean, of course, disappointing to absolutely everyone. But she must reflect on some of the ironies of all that as she sings from the kitchen, from her kitchen table. Or indeed, this week is posting videos about voting with her paintings of Martin Luther King and, and uh, uh, many other people, seven people. She's a young man came to a house of prayer. 
They did not ask what brought him there He was not friend, he was not keen But they opened the door and let him in And for an hour the stranger stayed He sat with them and he seemed to pray But then the young man drew a gun And killed nine people In Charleston in the month of June The mourners gathered in a room The president came to speak some words And the cameras rolled and the nation heard But no words could say what must be said For all the living So on that day and in that place The president sang amazing grace The president sang amazing grace Argued where to lay the blame On one man's hate or our nation's shame Some sickness of the mind or soul And how the wounds might be made whole But no words could say what must be said For all the living and the dead So on that day and in that place The president sang amazing grace My president sang amazing And that was Joan Baez singing the song written by Zoe Mulford. The president sang Amazing Grace. I uh, I saw Zoe Mulford. Uh, I, I've known her for, for a number of years. And I, I remember right after she wrote that song, she performed it at a, a music conference I was attending. And we were all stunned by it. And then when we learned Joan Baez sang that song, it was, and had heard Joan Baez sing that song, it it really strikes the, the power of not only Zoe's song, but also the power of Joan Baez uh, to be able to find these songs. I understand she heard it on a radio station in California and uh, you know, she, she's been so- She was driving, I think, and pulled over to cry and listen to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And I was actually, I was in New York on one of my many recent trips um, on the day of, you know, I was watching, as you do in hotel rooms, you know, you have the television on the whole time and, and uh, on came the service and, uh, you know, I just watched kind of open mouthed with tears as, as he sang it because it was such an extraordinary thing to see. Yeah. 
Well, um, we're talking with Elizabeth Thompson, author of the new book, Joan Baez, The Last Leaf, um, a book that, uh, well, I guess was years in the making as we, as we talked with Elizabeth. She had mentioned how she, she's interviewed Joan for so many years. Um, you interviewed her while you were doing this book. Was she aware of, of what your, your plans were? I didn't interview her for this book, actually. When I, so I saw her in, in uh, May 2018 in Bristol, in the West mm-hmm. Country, where the first of the, of the statues to the slave traders was, was toppled um, during our Black Lives Matter protest, which she'd be very pleased about. And at that stage, I hadn't been commissioned. Uh-huh. So I, but I did write a, a feature for a folk music magazine, um, and I was thrilled to do that. And suddenly, not long after that, came this commission. So I thought, what do I do now? You know, she's busy. Um, she probably won't want to collaborate. So um, I wrote her a letter to her office um, with the interview that had just been published, long interview. Um, and I said I was thrilled I'd been commissioned to write this book, which would be a celebration. And this was the series it would fall into, and this was how it would be. And I didn't ask her for anything. Um, I didn't even ask her permission, which perhaps was rude to me. I mean, it was sort of, you know, it was a sort of FYI letter. And I thought, well, you know, she's known me down the years. She's seen the kind of stuff I've written. Um, maybe I'll come back for my next visit to the States and find a letter on the doormat saying, please don't do it. But I didn't, I didn't hear anything. So I thought, well, okay, that's all right. And then um, I, one of the people I, um, I wanted, well, there were two people who were quite close to, one of them was Mitch Greenhill, um, Manny Greenhill's son, her first manager. And um, Betsy Siggins, who I'm sure you know, sure. Talk, had talked fairly, I'd met her previously, she talked fairly freely, and she put me in touch with Mitch. And we had an email, um, which resulted in us meeting in London when he was passing through. And the first thing he said to me over, over coffee um, about this time last year, he said, well, um, you know, when you got in touch, um, I rang uh, Mark Spector, current manager, and I asked him, you know, did they know about the book? And is it okay if I talk? And he said, yeah, we know about it. If you want to talk, that's fine. So I was, that was really nice because I felt, oh, well, okay, that's sort of, uh, you know, that's uh, not necessarily approval, but it's not, you know, they're not blocking anything. Um, and similarly, I, I had an email, long email correspondence, we're now in touch all the time with Alan Abrahams, who, who's an English guy actually on the West Coast now, who produced her three 1980s albums, really good albums, which didn't have, have been re-released, but at the time kind of sank without trace, sadly, and show her voice that it's, mid-period best um so i said you know i'm writing this book you know can i if i send you a few questions can we have a conversation and he said yes and then it all went quiet and he said he was spending christmas with joe christmas and new year and i still hadn't heard and i thought oh maybe she said alan you know i really thought you didn't but anyway he eventually came back to me and he said i started answering your questions and i just lost the you know it just disappeared into the ether so send them again so I resent um, some questions. Like, you know, they, went, they were some general questions and kind of you know, open questions, so he could go off at tangents. And he sent me back um, a lot of thoughts about working with her. So you know, he probably told her that mm-hmm. I'd been in touch. And, you know, I just speculation. I'm not. I'm not trying to claim anything for it. But I. So I. You know, I didn't. Maybe if I'd have asked her for another interview, she would have. Except she was busy. Um, or asked for photographs, she'd been happy to provide. I'd now send her a copy. So, but anyway, it's, you know, it's, uh, I've tried to make it, a, it's, you know, it's essentially serious study. I mean, so there's nothing, there's nothing scarred in it. Right. Uh, 
you know, I'm not sure how much scurrilousness there is in her life, and if she wants to reveal any that there is, that's entirely a matter of her. I mean, it doesn't interest me as a reader to read that kind of stuff. I mean, I'm interested in um, artists or you know, public figures. You know, you're interested in what they've contributed to life, not what goes on behind their their front door or certainly behind their bedroom door. Um, so it's a serious book. Uh, it treats her. Um, with respect, but as you said, I haven't fawned over. There are some, there are kind of records and recordings that I'm critical of. Um, um, but you know, I I I think there's a huge amount to admire about it. So I was able to to write objectively, I think and hope, um, without fawning. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, I didn't feel that there was no need to uh, to swing any axes. To grind any axis is the saying, isn't it? Sorry. (laughs) Well, it's a a fascinating book, and uh, it's a book that I've certainly learned a lot from. And um, again, it's uh, Joan Baez, The Last Leaf. There's also a beautiful painting on the back cover, which I understand is uh, with with Joan Baez's self-portrait. And I believe that's what she's doing now, going more into, into painting. Yes, I mean, she's she hasn't, I don't think she's really used the, I mean, she's probably used it occasionally, but she didn't really say she was retiring, she was stepping down from the stage. Right, right. Um, because maintaining the voice, you know, I mean, gravity and, you know, we all get older and stuff happens, you know. Sure. Uh, actually, I think the voice in her last album is very beautiful, but I mean, yeah. the maintenance, she said it was a lot of work. And she had other things she wanted to do. She wanted to paint and she's rather good at it. So she's portrait painting, she's done one exhibition of Mischief Makers, um, and she's been she's been incredibly busy over the last couple of months actually painting, and, and her output does include a couple of self portraits. Uh, I mean, she's always drawn and sketched. I mean, people who have her albums will remember the Eddie Day Now cover, for example, that's got lots of drawings on it, or her songbooks. Uh, and um, and then I and, and then I wrote the big songbook uh, has right. her line drawings from every song, uh, and indeed her autobiography contains some childhood drawings. So she's always she's always sketched. Now she's painting, and they're they're pretty remarkable. I mean, people, you know, she did two, she did two paintings actually, one for Italy and one um, of John Prine, um, both of which were sold in limited edition prints to raise money for Italians in their hour of greatest need in March, and for a New York fund for for COVID disadvantaged families. I think so. She raised a, a hundred thousand dollars there, which was which is very nice. So she's continuing to be a, to be an activist. Yeah, you know, I've always felt biographies are not just written just for today, but it's written for future generations. Uh, people are going to read your book, and then next generation will learn more about Joan Baez. If you had to do a thirty-second elevator speech to explain who Joan Baez was and is, and what her relevance was, maybe that's going to take more than thirty seconds. But um, how would you describe her to someone who has no clue as to who Joan Baez is? Well, there are a lot of people, of course, who certainly a few years ago would have had absolutely no no clue. Um, and, uh, you know, it is very important that they know because she played a very significant, uh, you know, as we discussed, she, she brought lots of songwriters to public attention, lots of musicians um, to, public, uh, to public attention. So it matters. She's part of the great 20th century and 21st century musical continuum. Um, and... Uh, lots of people beyond, sorry, we're way beyond the elevator pitch now, but can I continue? You know, what people, you know, Led Zeppelin, Jimmy Page heard, heard the introduction to Babe, I'm Gonna Leave You on one of the in concert albums. 
and was blown away by it and recorded it. So she influenced people way beyond just the obvious kind of folk singers and so on. So she's musically very important. That's her induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame a couple of years ago proved. But I, you know, I think like Pete Seeger, uh, Pete Seeger particularly, Woody Guthrie was, a, was obviously his own, you know, very much his own man, lived a very different life and a very tragic life in the end. Um, she shows that you can live doing good things for the public good. Mm -hmm. um, and her music and her social activism are indivisible. And she is, you know, I talked about the Venn diagram. I think she is a Venn diagram through which you can look at um, the late 20th century American psychodrama, if, if you will, much of it around, around, around Vietnam. Um, but she's been involved in so much else, you know, the civil rights movement. I mean, the movements where music was very important, as it was in the civil rights movement, as it still is in the civil rights movement. So, I, you know, I think there are many figures in history that we could probably align her to and, and you know, look at all the things they've done. I think she's beyond the music. I think she's, she's, a, singular, she's a singular figure, I think. And... It's not, it's not just, she's not just of interest to people who like this kind of music. Um, she's part of, she should be part of the reading and education of people who are interested in women's studies, peace studies, um, the civil rights movement, you know, Black America, Hispanic America. You know, she feed, what she did um, feeds into so many other aspects of not just American life, but, you know, she is in America, so let's leave that. And she's, you know, she's a, she's a, she's, um, a vibrant thread in a much larger tapestry. And people need to learn how all those threads come together. And that's why she matters. And that's absolutely not an elevator pitch, which I've never been very good at. So <laughs> it was good for, I, I, I appreciated it. Well, it's an old fashioned elevator, put it that way. <laughs> there you go. It's a skyscraper. And that's what she was, yeah, yeah. Joan Baez. Uh, she's just a, a legendary figure and a figure that is still going to be around and influencing and uh, inspiring. Yeah, I mean, she will, I hope, live a long life. Her parents lived long lives. Um, you know, so I, I hope she's around. You know, I hope she, we celebrate her centenary as, we did, as she did her mother's. Um, but her, her, her legacy and her music will be around long after she's crossed the Jordan River. And so will this wonderful book, Elizabeth Thompson. Thank you. The book is called Joan Baez, The Last Leaf. It's published by Palazzo. Uh, available at fine booksellers and online and yeah. all kinds of wonderful things. Well, Elizabeth, I just thank, can I just thank actually on your program yes. Arthur Levy, um, who's who did the main discography. I mean, her official discography, um, very learned discography. He did the bias discography online, and he did it as people will know who follow her music. He did all the sleeve notes for the Vanguard reissues and the AM and the Goldcast and every other issue. And he became a friend for the village trip and he offered to do the definitive discography, which I think adds much to this book. And I'm very grateful for him. He's a lovely guy um, and it was a very generous offer. And thank you very much, Arthur. I may not be listening, but. You know. <laughs> well, I, I'd like to thank him. I'm sure. I'd like to thank him too, because this is definitely going to be a much, uh, much well-used uh, reference for me. And just a lovely book. Not only is it well-written, but the wonderful photographs and posters. And uh, once again, we've been talking with Elizabeth Thompson. The book is called Joan Baez, The Last Leaf. Palazzo is the publisher. It's available 
wherever fine books are sold. And uh, Elizabeth, I want to thank you again for, for talking with us today. And uh, we look forward to talking to you again in the future. You have some exciting projects and hopefully this COVID will pass. And uh, well, well, you'll be back in business and uh, we'll see you here in the States real soon. <laughs> oh, I can't wait to get back. I've so missed it over these last eight months. Uh, thank you very much. I, you know, I feel so at home in the States right. and um, I hope it's okay if I say that I wish you luck. God, thank you. Thank you. you. Too, yeah. <laughs> well, we're going to end now our little visit with uh, another song from Joan Baez. I think this is a song that, is this the last song she sang in concert? Dink's song? Was that the? It was. It was. I was in Madrid to see it. It was very emotional. You know, yeah. uh, adios, amigos, she sang. And then, adios, right. she was. Well, I think it's a good, good uh, way to end our little visit today. Elizabeth Thompson, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Take care. Here now, Joan Baez. If I had wings like Noah's dove, I'd fly up the river to the man I love Fairly well money Fairly well Some one of these mornings And it won't be For me and I'll be gone. Fare thee well, my honey. man I love